0: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. In her new memoir, Samantha Power writes about her rule for weighing whether an action is worth taking. She calls it the X test, or as she puts it, in trying for Y, the most I accomplish is X. In other words, is an endeavor worthwhile, even if it's likely to fail? Power has had some fails, and she's made a lot of bold moves in her life. Some weren't up to her, like moving from Ireland to the U.S. at age nine. But as a young adult, she jumped into the fray as a reporter during the Balkan Wars, She wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book that took the American government to task for failing to stop genocides even after the Holocaust. She later became U.S. ambassador to the U.N. under President Obama. Her new book, The Education of an Idealist, is more personal. It's an unguarded account of her evolution from critical outsider to administration insider. Samantha Power will be talking about her book at the Carter Center on Wednesday, November the 20th. Thank you so much for speaking with us delighted. Well, you were born in Ireland. You went to a family and a culture that values storytelling. And there are many great storytellers in your life, your father, your stepfather. And you uh, were a journalist an author and policymaker. How did telling stories of others help you in your work?
1: Well, you know, even when I left the Obama administration uh, in January 2017, I faced that Abyss um, of our politics, but also what was I going to do with my life and was going to think about what to write and, and how to write it. And because we're so divided domestically, especially, it seemed almost useless to think about just writing to defend what we had done here or there, writing a policy book. And there was a moment I thought, okay, there's a, there's a big story that I happen to have been privy to. It might be easier to write than to have to report on every dimension of someone else's life. And that was my my own story. But then I had to overcome the presumptuousness of believing fundamentally that you shouldn't write a memoir unless you've brokered Middle East peace. Um, and so I had to get past that threshold. But I thought in this case, in, in, at a time when— U.S. leadership in the world is being questioned at a time when human rights at home and abroad are not getting the respect that they need, rather than just sort of tell a reader or a listener, hey, this is the right way to think about things, to tell my own story about how my ideals were forged, about why human rights came to me to feel like an imperative, like something that all of us should be doing what we can, even if it's at the margins, uh, to promote, and that that you know, stepping into someone's shoes and going with them on their journey has just always proven to me more persuasive than, you know, being told what to think. Mm.
0: So witness to so many other people's stories, now telling your own. Beginning in Dublin, where you spent a lot of time reading as a child in what you call your second home. This was Hardigan's Pub. Uh, In fact, the basement of the pub while your father was upstairs holding court. And you have fond memories of it. And, you know, I I don't want to be culturally insensitive and thinking that, you know, Children didn't hang out in pubs, but it sounded like you were the only one there.
1: How, how, how do you look back on that now? It's complicated like so much um, of life, I suppose. At the time, all I focused on was I was with my dad. He was a short set of stairs away from me. He was plying me with Fanta and 7-Up, and I had my stash of mystery novels to dig into. Um, At one point, there was a slot machine uh, that they put in the basement, the pub owners put in the basement, and so I used to read my books next to the light of the slot machine. I just thought that was the greatest thing, and I would hope for a a coin here or there so I could chance my own luck uh, down there, but the fact that I was reading right next to the men's Toilets. Um, It didn't, at the time, uh, it wasn't something I really noticed. The fact that so many people were drinking too much upstairs wasn't something I really paid much attention to. And it's only With hindsight and as a mother now of two kids myself, that I think, what was my dad thinking? (laughs) Um, But, you know, childhood is complicated. I mean, I still, my dad would end up dying um, not long after I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, when I was 14. And so I look back now, and on the one hand, I see that that was not a good environment for a child by any means. On the other hand, I look back and I wouldn't trade one minute in the pub um, for anything else because it was precious minutes uh, and hours and days that I had with my dad. What did you learn about his life after you left for America when you were
0: just nine years old?
1: I knew that he was an alcoholic when we were in Ireland, and that was not um, uncommon for for people in Ireland at that time. It was a very tough economic time, so a lot of people were drowning their sorrows. Of course, once something like alcoholism gets into the culture, into families, it's something that also gets replicated a fair amount. and. So the big step in my life was when my mother decided um, that she wanted to leave my dad, really because of the drink. She wanted to come to America, which was an even bigger deal, because there was no divorce in Ireland. And that meant that it wasn't as if she could separate her life from that of my dad, nor would I have wished her to to separate it entirely. But she ended up having to go to the, the court and ultimately landed in the Irish Supreme Court making the case for why um, it was in our interests as a family um, for her to obtain custody of us to come to America. And she was granted only a, really initially what was a kind of temporary stay. Uh, but what ended up happening in the coming years is my my dad didn't come to America to visit with us when we went back home. He tried to keep us in violation of the the terms of a, a really progressive custody arrangement I mean to give the woman the mother mm-hmm. custody of the children in a in a Country where alcoholism was didn't really stand out, and so could easily have just been kind of dismissed. Um, was was pretty unusual, but but my dad ended up kind of violating the terms, and that meant that we didn't go back after an initial visit uh, to Ireland, and we waited. I waited for my father to come uh, to America to visit me, and that was something he was never able to get his act together to do. And then, as I as I mentioned, he died very suddenly uh, when I had just actually moved from Pittsburgh, which is where we lived initially, to Atlanta, and I had just um, was in my freshman year of high school at Lakeside.
0: A profound effect on you, of course, but first I want to talk a little bit about that move to Pittsburgh in 1979. Same year, by the way, the Pittsburgh Pirates won the 1979 World Series.
1: Kelly hits it in the air to center field. Moreno, going toward right center, makes the catch. Pittsburgh wins it. And so this team with its remarkable
0: comeback capacity throughout the entire regular season proved itself all over again. Oh my goodness, that's Howard Cosell. <laughs> I'm
1: totally having flashbacks. I have not heard that since that moment. Well,
0: it was such a it's such a big deal for you. You you kind of embraced all American baseball and sport and cut your long red hair off and you were determined to lose your Irish accent. How did you come how did you come to adopt the US as your country? What were you seeing there that brought you the promise of something else?
1: Well, I mainly was seeing a neighborhood filled with boys. I was seeing um a goofy girl in her Catholic school uniform um who we my mother s- thought it was perfectly appropriate for me to show up in like a plaid skirt, black patent leather shoes, white lace socks to Pittsburgh, and so as soon as I noticed what the lingua franca was, and this was in the fall of 1979, just before um, the epic playoff run that the Pirates uh, would orchestrate, but um, I noticed that the one thing everybody was talking about was this sport, baseball, and I'd never played it. I didn't know the rules, but there was a, a sport that's not crazily dissimilar called rounders that I had played as a child in Ireland, and so you know like any uh adapter to new circumstances i just dug in i mastered the rules within a couple weeks i mastered i came to understand era and rbis and home runs and and uh and mainly came to understand that Pittsburgh's fortune and the Pirates fortune dictated whether my classmates were grumpy or whether they were happy and there was a solidarity in all of that that as an outsider I was desperate for I suppose and so I you know after they won my my interest became even deeper I, I was became a maestro baseball card dealer I had a you know, big league chew in my mouth most of the time to my mother's horror, uh, you know, with my cheek kind of bulging out as I strutted around trying to be as American and as baseball knowledgeable as I could be. And it was a currency. I didn't think at that point that I was giving anything up. I think it was just a wondrous new American world. And I thought my dad would always be there. I thought my, I would never not be Irish. And so it didn't seem as if there was even much of a price to be paid for, mm. for this new bounty
0: My guest is Samantha Power, former U.N. ambassador and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. We're talking about her new book, The Education of an Idealist. Well, you mentioned that your family did move to Atlanta. That was in 1983. You were enrolled at Lakeside High. Now, this is when DeKalb County was court-ordered to implement a new busing program, and you stepped into this minefield of racial tension at that time. What did that do to your vision of this new country where you lived?
1: Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot actually going back and writing this book about all that had preceded my little family's arrival, um, you know, on Briarcliff Road uh, near Lakeside. I I didn't know much of, of what I now know about how difficult it was to even secure permission for these African-American families to come to a school where they thought they'd get better, their kids would get better educational opportunities. I didn't know any of that. All I knew was that I showed up day one, eighth grade, and there were buses and buses of kids coming from far away, um, and some of them looked terrified, some of them looked thrilled, you know, at these new opportunities potentially that were being presented. There were. Uh, Angry white parents who uh, hated the fact that the school was being um, so welcoming, uh, and again, as you noted, uh, thanks to legal and, and very substantial uh, pressure on the system, uh, belatedly became welcoming, um, and this upset uh, a core constituency. So to see, you know, what in Pittsburgh and in Ireland i would never really had a lot of exposure to, which is... Prejudice and racism, but also bravery and resilience, and a determination to, you know, have an equal opportunity to learn. I mean, I saw both the bad and the good um, of the of those kinds of confrontations. And what what really struck me over time, and I think really shaped me when I when I look back on it, was, you know, on one level my classmates and I were the same, right? We were in the same school. We technically on paper looked like we had the same opportunities, but kids who were being bused from far away to get to Lakeside often had to get up at like five in the morning or even earlier sometimes. Meanwhile, I'm rolling out of bed at like 745, <laughs> you know, literally walking 10 minutes up Barcliffe Road to get to Lakeside. And then we show up and we're in first period together. And Is that a quality? I mean, I learned so many things about the experience I had there. It's an experience I've I've had nothing like it since. It was um, an eye-opener for a kid like me
0: those kinds of critical moments come up a lot in this book when you get struck by a moral imperative or, or a call for human dignity. And I'm thinking of you returning to Atlanta. This was after studying at Yale. You were interning at the CBS affiliate WAGA with hopes of being a sports journalist and there tracking scores of a Braves game when images of the Tiananmen Square protests started coming in. What did that feel like for you in that room at that time?
1: Well, First, let me say, yes, I was working at WAGA, it was called, was the TV station, and because your listeners are, I'm sure, uh, (laughs) people who remember them, yeah, I mean, Jeff Hollinger, still a major TV personality in Georgia. Bill Hartman, Robin Roberts. Uh, we all know Robin Roberts mm-hmm. now uh, from her morning talk show. She was the kind of assistant sports anchor, I think, at the time. So it was an amazing team of people. And for me, it was a dream come true. Remember, I'd, I'd come to America, thrown myself into learning about sports as a way of fitting in, thought I wanted to be a sportscaster, went to my freshman year of college and didn't really apply myself that much academically, but threw myself into being the play-by-play voice for the Yale men's basketball team. And I was on a, a sports sports. sports talk show at night with a bunch of guys just sounding off about the NBA and Major League Baseball and so forth. And so there I find myself in my dream summer job um, in the sports department. And as I'm taking notes on a Braves San Francisco Giants game in order to help cut the evening news, you know, the little sports segment on the evening news, uh, this footage comes from Tiananmen Square. And I do see I see kids my age protesting for their rights and for freedom. And then I see the tanks coming down this big, you know, wide Beijing boulevard and mowing over these students who were racing away on their bicycles. And I wish I could say that my thought was, oh, okay, now one day I'm going to become UN ambassador and here I'm going to go learn Mandarin and and put myself in a position to, to be useful uh, in some way in the world. I did not have that thought. I don't think any reasonable 18 19 year old would have had that thought the thought i had instead was simply i got to learn more about what's going on in the world like mm-hmm. what is this mm-hmm. i mean how this is horrible and and these are just students you know standing up for their rights and and the other thing that occurred to me was what is America going to do, uh, which wasn 't a question I think that had ever occurred to me before you know i wasn 't somebody who was very political i wouldn 't have known if I was a Democrat or a Republican at that point and and so I just had the thought of maybe there's more to life than sports uh but i didn't renounce my you know hope for a future as a sports journalist for quite a long time i mean it 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 would have been so presumptuous in a way for me given how little i knew about the world um and how few pathways i could have envisaged for any individual to make a difference to say okay i'm going to do something about this it was much more gradual it was much more wow uh, we 're connected. I feel connected to these people in some fashion i 'm one person and i 'm not a very informed person at that i don 't think I can do anything about this as such, but the least I can do is maybe try to get a little bit smarter and not be afraid of the big gaps in my in my knowledge and and i When I got back to campus, I started subscribing to the New York Times and I used to actually underline. Passages uh, to to try to learn what was happening in these countries or what the name of the head of state was. I was good already on geography because if you're Irish you kind of learn geography from very early on because you know that at some point, in your DNA, there's the idea that you're going to have to leave. And so geography I was down with, but but everything else about what was actually happening inside countries, I was so new to. And so, you know, I, I wish I still had copies of these newspapers I was marking up, and I would quiz myself and, but it was a very gradual process, still years away from believing that there was something I might be able to do professionally uh, to make a difference. But the first step is the most important. It's just to open yourself up and and be and be open to learning about things that are happening around you, whether in your own community or, or far away in, in Beijing or any place else.
0: Stick around. We're going to come back and talk more with my guest, Samantha Power. Her new memoir is called The Education of an Idealist, and she's going to be talking about the book in Atlanta on Wednesday, November 20th. And we're heading to the break with the classic We Are Family. This was the theme song of the 1979 World Series winning Pittsburgh Pirates. We're back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott with my guest, Samantha Power. She's former U.N. ambassador and Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and she's out with a new memoir. It's called The Education of an Idealist. She'll be talking about the book at the Carter Center on Wednesday, November the 20th. All right, so just before the break, you were talking about seeing Tank Man, this protester in Tiananmen Square, and thinking, what is America going to do, which becomes a sort of guiding idea for you. And as a a fresh graduate from Yale, you took an internship at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, working with these characters that are pretty indelible and come across beautifully in the book, in particular, Mort Abramowitz and Fred Cuny. And, And there's a way that they are working both inside of the system and outside of the system. And I'm wondering what their respective approaches taught you about what you could do in terms of American foreign policy.
1: Well, I think that that question that occurs to so many of us, and now I'm back to being a private citizen as I was in my in my early 20s and have been for much of my life, but where you read about something terrible that's happening in the world and you and you think, oh, I wish I could do something. And then you quickly think, eh. What can one person do? And I was incredibly blessed out of college. To work in proximity to two people who tended not to get paralyzed by that question hmm. in the way that I find very, very tempting to get paralyzed sometimes. One was, as you said, Morta Bromwitz, who had been in the U.S. government for 35 years. He'd been ambassador to Turkey when George H.W. Bush had set up the no-fly zone for the Kurds in northern Iraq, and Fred Cooney had never served in the government. But he had been uh, a Texan engineer who deployed himself to the most dangerous places in the world where there was humanitarian need and used his engineering. Uh, skills and knowledge to figure out in a sort of tactical, logistic way what can be done to get food uh, to people who have no access to it because of conflict or famine or something else. And so here were these two guys, one, uh, a former diplomat who thought in terms of governmental, intergovernmental, UN, you know, sort of things that could be done, and then here's this outsider who was always at the glass with his face pressed up, uh, mm-hmm. you know kind of banging on the door and saying here 's what you should be doing at scale here 's what I can do in a small way as an engineer with an organization that 's that 's going to have modest impact but here 's how you government and governments here 's how you can scale what i 'm doing." And, I mean, it was a heck of an introduction for somebody in their early 20s. I very quickly also developed a taste that both of them um, exhibited, the taste that they had, which was for being where things were rather than far away Mm -hmm. uh, reading about things that had been filtered. And so I devoured all the journalism that was coming out of the region. But at a certain point, um, you know, I went to the... Local store and bought Serbo-Croatian tapes, and I had one of those yellow Walkman, you know, the, with the oh yeah thick the thick headphones, you the know, sport wireless, the, yeah, the sport Walkman, exactly waterproof. I'll have you know, um, and I would walk to and from the gym and be practicing my Serbo-Croatian. I just wa- I wanted to go over there. I, wa- oh, I I should have mentioned that the thing that they were most exercised by was was the war in Bosnia, um, which was, again, an example of ethnic conflict and nationalism and political opportunism, where one group of people was ge- being targeted on the basis of religion and ethnicity. And so, like my two new mentors, um, who I stumbled into, I wanted to sort of get over there and be in a position to know what the right thing to do was for the UN, for humanitarian actors, for the people on the ground, even what was what was the right choice for them to make? Should they flee their home? Should they stand their ground? And so after a year of trying to be helpful to Mort and to Fred, these two um, larger-than-life figures in my young life, I decided to go over there and become a journalist myself, uh, which was the best way to learn the language and to get a sense of how the ideals of the post Cold War world were or were not being applied in real life.
0: Sarajevo has been under siege.
1: To say that the daily life of these people is intolerable is understatement.
0: There is no safe place or time. On July the 11th, 1995, the Serbs slaughtered thousands of Bosnian men and buried them in mass graves. Memories of terror and death come pouring out. Why didn't they kill me, she is asking. Why didn't they kill me? Of course, we're condensing many years of conflict there, and that's not unlike the challenge that you came up with as a journalist in the Balkans, trying to tell stories of people you encountered with dignity and integrity. Well, in the U.S. and other places, one of the rationales staying out of the conflict was, this is not our war. These people have been killing each other for centuries. Uh, That's a sentiment that you heard much later when you were part of the Obama administration. So back then, when you were on the ground in Bosnia, d- did you think your stories could change that kind of thinking?
1: I guess I did. I mean, in the sense that I, I suppose I brought a, a faith in the American public, a faith in our lawmakers who weren't then nearly as divided or as politically polarized as they are now. Um, I brought the knowledge that the... Uh, George H.W. Bush administration and then the Clinton administration were constantly debating what to do. I also brought a knowledge that what was happening in Bosnia implicated more than just the fates of the people who were being targeted like those you just heard from, but it also implicated the future of NATO, Europe, you know, such a key uh, partner to the United States, and, and the so-called New World Order was there going to be one. And so it always felt as though the United States and other powerful countries were on the verge of um, being you know more aggressive in in trying to bring the conflict to an end, but then they just kept <laughs> not being more aggressive and and just investing in diplomacy, which is extremely important. but when you do diplomacy and it 's not leveraged by anything and there 's a disparity in in who is militarized on the ground and who is defenseless, it's going to be hard for, without a balance of power or some offsetting impact from outside, it's going to be hard to secure a peace agreement. And and that was what kept happening for three and a half years, just this imbalance persisting and civilians being targeted. And um, it got to the point, initially, when i got there people were so welcoming of journalists cuz they thought they're telling our stories mm-hmm. if people they had that same faith you know if people in western countries only knew you know we have faith in america we believe that they're going to come and and end the siege of sarajevo and and convince the serbs to stop rounding up women and putting them in rape camps After three and a half years of conflict, and by my last summer there, people had lost faith, and and I had lost faith, that mere knowledge would, would overcome you know, in some cases, some very sound reasons for being skeptical about involvement. So, I actually decided to leave after the massacre in the so-called safe area of Srebrenica, where 8,000 Muslim men and boys were murdered within a few days, just rounded up, put in fields, executed, uh, and you know, buried in mass graves. And and I that was sort of the final straw for me. I thought, this isn't, nothing I'm writing is making, uh, you know, a difference. And I didn't expect me personally to be the difference. Maker, but I thought maybe all of the words and all of the images and uh, would generate enough um, of, a, of a, a sense of pressure uh, to get the then-Clinton then Clinton administration uh, to get involved. I decided to go to law school, and I left, and I was driving. I had just been back in the States maybe less than a week, and I was driving onto campus for my, my what would prove to be my first week in law school, when I heard that finally, in fact, NATO had uh, gotten involved, and NATO had begun to enforce the u n resolutions that had been on the books for years and within about two weeks of when I started law school, the war had been brought to an end uh, with no casualties for for the united states but but ending the ethnic and religious targeting that was happening on the ground. Having said that, what I knew then and, and what of course remains true to this day is even if you're you do think an intervention of that nature is appropriate, that the benefits will outweigh the costs. Something like that will never deal with the underlying causes of conflict in the first place. You know, that same same we see played out here 18 years into our war in Afghanistan. We saw this in Libya in the Obama administration. But, you know, what it did do was buy the people a reprieve it did stop the slaughter of children on playgrounds, and Bosnia is really screwed up all these years later today, but it's not at war. And so sometimes in foreign policy, simply you know the, 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 the absence of war does not mean the presence of a just peace, but it does mean that people are not being targeted and killed uh, as they go to school in the morning.
0: My guest is Samantha Power, former U.N. ambassador and Pulitzer Prize-winning author. We're talking about her new book, The Education of an Idealist, which charts her life really from her early days as a child in Ireland onto the Balkan Wars where she was a reporter and then onto the Obama administration. But I want to talk about you coming back to the U.S. and going to law school, making that decision you were traumatized, and, and you realized that at that time it was the lack of stress that unnerved you. You know, the calm environment that was around you gave you a, a sense of anxiety, something you called the lungers. One of your college boyfriends described it as this shortness of breath that would suddenly come upon you. And then you realized it was anxiety. So what was it that pushed you to try to deal with it at Harvard? Because, you know, one of your friends said, go to therapy. You were like, eh. And they said, I think, I think <laughs> something like, you know, you can live in a war zone but you don't dare to go to therapy you know what 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 pushed you there
1: well i i definitely thought it was important in writing a memoir to to open up in these ways because of course anxiety and different mental health health issues are what so many people are are carrying around every day and i was in deep denial that i had anything going on in me um to this day i guess i can't really say was the The sort of lungers as as my college boyfriend put it this this breathing issue you know was it related to my childhood and you know some of the issues with my my father and his what would become his sudden death in my life, which was very you know very very unexpected and something I carried with me, and I carried a sense of guilt that I hadn't been there with him, and that it, had I been there, maybe he wouldn't have you know, drank so much or drank himself all the way to the end. Um, and so I was carrying a lot of that and had not confronted any of that. Then I suppose I either distracted myself from those underlying issues or compounded the underlying issues by going into a war zone and living under siege off and on for a couple years. So that wouldn't do wonders, I suppose, for one's <laughs> right. mental health. Um, and my way of dealing with whatever anxiety or pain I was carrying was full speed ahead. Damn the torpedoes, you know, onward. What's my next challenge? How, you know, and I, in constant motion. And so at a certain point, it became clear that um, that this breathing issue I was having was not going away. I had one, I went for a run one day and and decided I was going to, that my way of getting my breath back um, was just to run and run and run and run as fast as I could and as long as I could. And I was training for a marathon. I just ran and I ran and I ran. And at a certain point, I was—I was. it wasn't because of the running, but it was because of this underlying anxiety. I, I just couldn't get a breath, and so I tried to get a big breath. And then I wiped out, and I went falling into this pile of gravel and glass, luckily did not into incoming traffic, but kind of looked down, and I was just, sort of layered in in my in the debris from the road Mm -hmm. and bleeding everywhere and everything and I kind of thought, ah, this might be time to examine the underlying issue, and and so finally began therapy. But was it was years before my guard came down, and I realized I really have to deal with some of this stuff. And so I, I write about that journey in the book. My skepticism about therapy and therapists. The the Irish have a saying, which is you know Irish people don't even like using the first person in therapy, um, uh, which makes writing a memoir, by the way, as a as a Irish American. Uh, um, challenging because it's all first person, but but you know to to, to spend all that time dwelling on oneself Mm. when the world is burning around you you know just felt very self-indulgent to me and still does on one level but it was necessary and it was only as I as I dug into again the alcoholism in my family my father's death some of what the war had left me with um, that I that I developed at least some kind of self-understanding of what was going on which was a foundation for for, for making different forms of progress, including by falling in love and, and being able to get married and and have kids, I mean so I, I credit therapy with being in a in a better position to to see and appreciate love that was there for me all along, but that seemed a little too risky for me to to embrace.
0: I'm really grateful that you did. I know I understand why that feels so like you're risking a lot, um, and especially from what you come from, the idea that that's somehow indulgent for you to be talking Indeed. about your pain and all of the, you know, when you were, you know, writing about the genocide in Rwanda, for that matter. But I think for a lot of people, and I will say this as women, you know, the way that we doubt ourselves when we're in these spheres of power. Um, that these kind of things that haunt you, that, you know, I'm not getting this right, I'm not doing this right. And this is something that comes up, I think, or I see it over and over again in the book, the idea of, you know, are you in the room? Are you out of the room? This idea of like, am I, what is my voice here? I'm wondering how you are looking back at that, especially after writing this memoir, how you negotiated that.
1: Well, I think... What I try to do in this book um, is, even though the questions that I might be having are a little bit um, distinct, right, in the sense that I'm saying, "Oh, should I tell President Obama that I think he's wrong about this or that?" or "Or should I raise my voice in opposition to the, the Russian ambassador over their bombing of Aleppo?" Like, in other words, my questions are my questions. Therefore, they they stem from my life and where I landed in the foreign policy domain and in this incredibly privileged position of, of being able to be part of President Obama's team. But even though that's me and my story, these are universal phenomena, right? Where, where all of us have had the experience of being in a meeting, thinking that things are going a little off the rails, looking around wondering if everybody else agrees with us or if we're, you know, on some desert island by ourselves with this with this question in our mind, maybe speaking up in a meeting and then having particularly you know, given the gender dynamics in meetings, you know, having people just blow past whatever it is we said, um, either dismissing it or just acting as if it wasn't said in the first place, and then having the experience of some male Colleague or counterpart making the same point, and then everybody think, "Oh, Bob's point is brilliant." Uh, <laughs> we've all had those experiences, um, and and so I, I what I try to do in the book in opening up not only what what happened, but to open up the the insides of some of the participants, of course, starting with me, but but others as well, to open up that that um, even in these you know incredible. Uh, that places of of influence and privilege, there are individuals who are very human who are figuring out how they simultaneously make an argument to the president of the United States, as they f- figure out how to pick up their children at daycare who they've forgotten to <laughs> to line up uh, childcare for. Um, you know that that this is how life is lived, and it's lived that way. By the President of the United States, and it's lived that way by a school teacher or an architect, or we're all human beings, you know, kind of doing our best. And so I thought it was important to offer a very different window into the humanity of public service, in part to attract more people to it. So because I think some people look and they say, well, I'm not sort of eloquent like Obama or, you know, I don't have the diplomatic experience of of John Kerry or Madeleine Albright. If you actually open up any one of the individuals I just named, um, you would see so many of those same questions at the earliest stages of their careers. And they found a way to overcome those doubts and those questions and put one foot in front of the other. And so at a time when we need more people to engage in their communities, in politics, more people to be activated by the injustices around us. Um, I, I think that rendering the exercise of being uh, an, an agent in our world, uh, rendering that more relatable, more open, more human, more vulnerable, I'm hoping that that has the effect of, of ensuring that, that, that people see that you, you don't have to have everything together to make a small difference in your world.
0: Samantha Power, former U.N. ambassador, journalist, and Pulitzer Prize-winning author. We're talking about her book, The Education of an Idealist. And when we come back, we will hear more from her about the human stories of international diplomacy. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stick with us for more of On Second Thought. This is On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott. We're continuing our conversation with Samantha Power, human rights advisor to Senator and then President Obama before being named UN ambassador. As the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide, she was a strident defender of human rights and an advocate for world powers to intervene in humanitarian crises abroad. Her new book, The Education of an Idealist, is her account of what led her there and a pretty unflinching glimpse of her internal battle over whether she became part of a system she once criticized for turning its back on the suffering of people across the world. She's going to be talking about the book at the Car- Center on Wednesday, November the 20th. It was your book, A Problem from Hell, that got the attention of then Senator Obama. And you tell the story of meeting with him and then working on his presidential campaign and of this definitive moment on the campaign trail when you were quoted for calling Hillary Clinton a monster. Now, you say that was an offhand comment to a journalist after an interview was over. But anyway, the media just had a field day with it and you left the campaign. What was that like being
1: in the middle of that firestorm? I was mortified. I mean, the idea here I'd built my career on talking about human rights and dignity and respect and to be saying, even in a, you know, just in a, in a fit of pique, uh, something so uh, sort of volatile and hyperbolic about uh, Senator Clinton I mean, it was crazy that I did that. And and so I resigned and it, it was the first time it had been the first time that I worked in a team, really, I found being on the Obama campaign, this kind of insurgent spirit we had, because nobody really gave us a chance of winning, mm-hmm. and to be, you know, I became just a kind of wandering person. I was just, All I wanted to do was be on the campaign, and yet I, I had to leave for the sake of the campaign, and that was a very, very low point in my life. I had just started dating somebody I'd met on the campaign, Cass Sunstein, the law professor and writer, and um, honestly... In retrospect, had I stayed on the campaign, I don't know whether I would have ever prioritized the relationship in the way that I would go on to do, insofar as I would, there was always going to be something to do for the campaign, some place to go to be a surrogate, to stand up for Obama, and and then we would have gone into government, and I would have been full speed ahead in my normal um, Zooming way, and by by getting... Displaced by my own mistake and by having to stop and to slow down and really to be almost paralyzed professionally, it was the first time I really opened myself up to a relationship that I was in and ended up after my gaffe. Uh, you know, within four months of that, uh, ended up getting married to Cass, uh, to whom I'm still very, very happily married. And so, one of the well, themes you, you the have to again, you have to just
0: tell us about what Richard Holbrook gave you for a, <laughs> a wedding present.
1: Yes. Well, um, I remained off the campaign from March until um, our marriage in July. By then, Senator Obama had secured the Democratic nomination. Um, this was in 2008. And um, Richard Holbrooke, the great diplomatic envoy who'd been a big Hillary supporter, uh, came all the way to Ireland, to the west of Ireland, for our wedding uh, very sweetly. And the morning after the wedding, he said, I have a wedding present for you. And I said, g- g- okay. <laughs> you know, OK, great. <laughs> You know, and he said, I've I've gotten Hillary's agreement that um she'll meet with you because I'd written to her and I tried in multiple ways to make sure she knew I didn't actually feel that way, that I just lost my temper and um and said these negative things. And so I was so moved. I actually I sort of wept uh, in the moment that he told me that I'd have this opportunity to say face to face to her what I'd only had a chance to say from afar, and so I had the meeting with her. She was incredibly gracious um, and accepted my apology in person. I then reached out to Senator Obama and said. I'm, I've made up with Hillary. Uh, we just had this meeting, and ho- Obama, you know, very quickly is not focused on what happened in the meeting. He's just focused on the fact that it was a wedding present, and he's like, "What?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, "You know, isn't that the nicest?" And he said, "What? You got a meeting with Senator Clinton as a wedding present? Like, don't we, most people get toasters?" <laughs> you know what? And he didn't see the, the like the beauty of it in the way that I did. But but anyway, out of this meeting, I was able to rejoin the campaign, which was important because then. When Obama went on to win, um, you know, I was in good standing with, with Senator Clinton as she became Secretary of State, but above all, I was I was in a position to to leap into the opportunities presented to be the mm-hmm. president's human rights advisor for the first term.
0: So you went from criticizing this system from the outside to being in the room where decisions are made and learned those decisions are not easy to make and, and getting traction for them, especially domestically, is an uphill battle. And You propose in the book that there's a toolbox that policymakers can use when considering humanitarian interventions or applying international pressure. It doesn't have to be all or nothing, but there's a whole array of tools that can be used. How did that notion of a toolbox play out as you entered this
1: new arena? The transition to going from being an outside critic of U.S. foreign policy to being um, at the center of the action. Uh, was a rocky one, and I write about that. I actually had another really important encounter with Richard Holbrook, the late great diplomat who sort of got impatient with my self-pity and and said, you know, Sam, you're going to be in this job once in your life to be advising the President of the United States on human rights. Like, you can sort of gripe about what meetings you're in, or you can just go where people are not. Hmm. And where they're not might be where you can get the most done. And sure enough, even when you have someone like President Obama who cared passionately about Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa inevitably his attention is going to be consumed by Iraq, Afghanistan, the global economy and the effect it's having on because at that time of course in the first term he's dealing with uh, the horrific um, fallout from the crash from the economic recession right. and so he's he's his bandwidth his His uh, ability to go really deep on a ton of issues um, is is not going to be there. He's going to have to focus on a few things. And so if all I'm doing is trying to be with him because I used to be in the Senate or I used to be on the campaign, I'm going to miss opportunities to take his values and his foreign policy vision and apply them elsewhere where there's less of a scrum. Uh, Less competition, less resistance. And so there were so many non-military tools that we could employ from actually just using the president's voice to denounce um, uh, killings that were going on somewhere to him engaging, let's say, a head of state who had lost an election but was refusing to step down him th- he, he he Obama threatening to sanction that individual and the people around them um and to freeze their assets for example that's something that could get a foreign leader's attention in a hurry um to going to the United Nations and getting African peacekeepers or others to deploy to try to protect civilians in very difficult environments and so on issue after issue where there wasn't there weren't going to be you know, big banner headlines about what we were doing, but there was such an ability, if you could build a coalition within the U.S. government and then better yet, build one globally, you'd be in a position with, with very modest investments uh, to be able to save lives.
0: You were eventually appointed U.N. ambassador, and your predecessor, Susan Rice, advised you to stay close by your Russian counterpart, Vitaly Cherkin. And you and he frequently sparred publicly, but there was also a great respect and a friendship. Uh, You write about going to the theater together and talking about TV shows. So how did you navigate that relationship when both of you are set to be at odds on the floor of the U.N.?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I tell this story, and again, um, instead of talking didactically about U.S.-Russian relations and what our policy should be, I thought the best vehicle uh, to talking about something so important was to talk about my relationship with a single Russian, the Russian ambassador to the U.N., and he was defending what I found to be despicable policies. He was doing so using what to me seemed like Soviet tactics, I mean, lying, distorting, you know, changing the subject. Um, and so he did all of those things. But what I really wanted to convey in the book is that we don't have the option of just holding our nose and turning away from mm-hmm. a country as powerful as Russia, a country whose policies we may fervently disagree with or even abhor. So, you know, life is complex. There, there I wish some days that, that we lived in a world of black and white, um, but we really don't. Um, you know, People who who do bad things are also capable of doing good things. And if you refuse to engage them, the odds that they're going to do good things as well as bad things go down, not up in some circumstances. And so what I tried to do was enlist him on the issues where I thought there was at least some prospect where he could get License to do things independent, License from Moscow to do things more independently minded. Um, and, you know, I also continue to try to see his humanity and to imagine myself what it would be like if I was in his shoes, um, uh, you know, working for Putin. And yet still in my in my heart, believing that U.S. Russian cooperation uh, was necessary and and ideal. And, and that he never ceased to believe that. I know that you get asked a lot about how the old
0: Samantha would view the new Samantha and what a conversation between the two of them would sound like. In a way, that's another way to frame the whole idealism versus realism conundrum. But this is your story about shaping your idealism and then banging up against the brutal realities and complexities of domestic and international politics. So how about not a conversation with 20-year-old Samantha, but how about any 20-something who wants to make a difference in the world? What would they take away from this? Would they be encouraged or discouraged to move on to a
1: life of public service? Encouraged, for sure. Um, insofar as I think what you see is one individual who, yes, fails, um, sometimes not very elegantly, uh, ends up pretty bruised in a variety of incarnations trying to promote human rights and and other values but who learns about how to maneuver in this messy world and you know whether it's again trying to get the Paris climate treaty over the finish line so it becomes international law before the 2016 election or building an Ebola, anti-Ebola coalition globally where we may have saved a million lives, uh, backing above all the work of Liberians, Guineans, and Sierra Leoneans who were, who were the true heroes of that uh, crisis response. A tiny little campaign that I and my team thought up um, in light of the human rights recession uh, that has been going on around the world for the last decade plus was to try to secure the release of 20 female political prisoners in countries like China, Egypt, Uzbekistan, Ethiopia. And just through using social media and getting some bipartisan support from the 20 female U.S. senators in Washington uh, backing our campaign, we ended up, again, backing the, the work of lawyers and family members of these women, uh, securing helping secure the release of 16 of the 20, which is such a small um, uh, achievement next to the data about a decade or more of freedom in decline around the world. Mm -hmm. But I think that is fundamentally the biggest lesson I've learned is that as president Obama likes to say, better is good. Um, small is small and you wish it was larger. I wish I'd gotten, you know, 200 women out of jail or 2000, but to, for every one of those 16 women, uh, it's the universe, right? It's a chance to be reunited with their kids and with their loved ones. It's a chance to raise their voice again in their communities, and so you know, my idealism is not has not shrunk. If in so far as I define idealism as, uh, you know, a dissatisfaction with the state of the world and the injustice around me, and a hope that in raising my voice or in doing something that I can make some modest difference. My idealism is not utopianism. It's a recognition that the changes we make in the first instance may be small, but it's also the knowledge that small change can affect one individual life in a way that, that can feel to that person transformative.
0: Samantha Power, thank you very much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you, Virginia.
0: Ambassador Samantha Power. We're talking about her new book, The Education of an Idealist, and she will talk much more about the book at the Carter Center on Wednesday, November 20th. You can find details on the event at gpbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is dean of grammar. Amy Kylie is senior producer. Mary Lynn Ryan is our executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.